Father, we come before you tonight with gratefulness in our hearts because you invite us to come before you. You even tell us we can come with boldness. And that is such a gift. And I am so grateful for it. Lord, I just think as we move into your word tonight, may we keep our focus on you. May we have open hearts and open ears to hear what you would speak to each of us. I pray that your spirit would be our guide and that you would be glorified in our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we looked at the death of Absalom. You know, um, I remember when I was a young man, and this had nothing to do, I should have told this story last week. Um, But when I was a young man, I had long hair. And I actually kind of did to my hair like Hannah does to hers. It was shaved all around the sides, and it was long. And even like that, my hair was big. My friends used to call me Little Big Hair. Um, I, I don't know why. I've never been little, but I did have big hair. And I'm thinking, Absalom had to chop off his hair once a year as part of a vow, And whenever he did, it was six pounds of hair. That's a lot of hair. And it was because of that hair that he got stuck in the thicket of a tree. And he was dangling there by his hair. And a young man saw him and told Joab. And Joab showed up with ten other guys and they killed him. After that, David returns to Jerusalem as king. And on that day, David refused to put anyone to death. And he appointed Amasa as commander over his army instead of Joab, which at the time was a good political move because Amasa had been leading Absalom's army and this was kind of a way to bring the military back into unity. Now we're not given a time frame between chapters 19 and 20. You know, it doesn't say and a year later or six months later or five minutes later or whatever, Uh, But it would seem that it happens pretty quickly after David returns to Jerusalem. So with that, chapter 20, verse 1. And there happened to be there a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and said, we have no share in David nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. So every man of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. Now, what's really interesting about this is if you remember from last week, uh, as David was coming back into Jerusalem, There were leaders from the ten tribes, what became the northern kingdom, as well as those from Judah. And they started arguing over basically who loved David more. And the Israelites from the northern kingdom said, well, we have ten parts in the king. You only have one part. We we are, we definitely, you know, we wanted him back before you. But it said the men at the end of chapter 19, that the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So the men of Israel shut up. And apparently, a short time after that, 
Sheba goes, you know what? Fine. We have no part in David. Men of Israel, to your tents. And off they went. Now David came to the house in Jerusalem and he took the ten women. This is verse 3. His concubines whom he had left to keep the house and he put them in seclusion and supported them. But not go in, but did not go into them. So they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. And the king said to Amasa, Assemble the men of Judah for me within three days, and be presented here yourself. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. So Joab's men, with the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and all the mighty men went out after him. And they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. Now Joab was dressed in battle armor. On it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at his hips. And as he was going forward, it fell out. Then Joab said to Amasa, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand. And he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again. Thus he died. Then Joab and Abishai his brother pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. So Sheba is called a rebel, but the word rebel there actually, uh, and your translation may have this depending on what your translation is, it's actually son of Belial. And son of Belial is a fancy way of saying son of Satan. He convinces the Israelites to take off. Uh, we get a quick blurb about how David took care of the women that Absalom had, to defi- had defiled, so they were no longer his concubines, but he still took care of them. Now, David wants Amasa to gather the army and pursue Sheba within three days. But Amasa was late. So he tells Abishai and and Joab, kind of tags along, and he says, you guys better go because I I don't know where Amasa is. Along the way, they meet Amasa at the large stone. And I want you to remember that Amasa is Joab's cousin. They were related. And it tells us that Joab was dressed for battle. He had his armor. And what would appear to have happened is that as Amasa was approaching, that he probably bowed to him. Now, the scripture doesn't say that, but it says as he went forward, the sword fell out of its sheath. I'm guessing that he bowed. And when Amasa got there, he grabbed him by the beard. And, you know, you might get the picture in your head that he grabbed his beard and yanked it, but he probably just put his hand under like the chin like he was going to kiss him, and Amasa didn't know that he had picked up his sword with his other hand. Stabbed him, all the entrails fell out. So, Joab has issues. Last week, he worked hard to preserve the kingdom for David. But here, this guy, right, Amasa, who did not choose this position, but was appointed by David, is killed Because Joab doesn't like competition. This is the third time Joab committed murder to protect his own position. 
Proverbs 14.30 says, A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. And then up in Proverbs 23.17, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. I don't think Joab really had a fear of the Lord. He just had a fear of losing his power. And I also, I was having this discussion with um, Pastor Ralph, my brother, uh, this morning. And we were talking about David. And, and the question, and I've brought this up before, is was David afraid of Joab? Or was God using Joab to keep David on the throne? Was it a little bit of both? I mean, I, I'm, I'm saying, let, let's say we had several staff members. And one of our staff members was worried that I was going to replace him. And he went to the guy that he thought I was going to replace him with and spilled his guts on the ground. I'm thinking I would fire him at the very least. But this is the third time Joab has committed murder, right? Not war, not a battle, not defending the king, straight up cold-blooded murder. And so I kind of think David may have been afraid of him. Now, verse 11 um, After Joab and Abishai take off to pursue Sheba, it says, Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. But Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the men saw that, all the people stood still. So he, this guy who's standing there going, Come on, we need to follow him. He moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him when he saw that everyone who came upon him halted. When he was removed from the highway, all the people went after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Um, I can only imagine what that site looked like. Now, for those of you who are hunters, right, you've gutted an animal and pulled out the entrails and whatnot. I've never done that. I, I, I don't want to. I'm good, right? I've cleaned a fish before, but I just couldn't imagine seeing a human being in that situation. I mean, he was dead, but still. So nobody wants to go. So Joab's man moves him off the road, covers him up, and then everybody follows after. Verse 14. And he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, and Beth Maaka, and all the Barites. So they were gathered together, and also went after Sheba. Then they came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maaka. And they cast up a siege mound against the city, and it stood by the rampart. And all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman cried out from the city, Hear, hear! Please say to Joab, Come nearby, that I may speak with you. And when he had come near to her, the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said, Hear the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I am listening. So she spoke, saying, They used to talk in former times, saying, They shall surely seek guidance at Abel. And so they would end disputes. I am among the peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? And Joab answered and said, Far be it, far be it for me that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not so. 
But a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba the son of Bichri by name, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. So the woman said to Joab, Watch, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. I like this lady. Then the woman in her wisdom went to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. And he blew the trumpet, and they withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. What we don't get is Joab's explanation of what happened to Amasa. It's not here. Don't you think David asked, what happened to Amasa? Joab, you know, I sent him out. You're coming back and telling me about the victory. Did he lie? Did he tell him the truth? I don't know. It would only be a guess. So after searching among the tribes, they gather more people to follow after them. Uh, Joab and his men besiege this city of Abel. It was in the northernmost part of Israel. So, uh, not Joab, sorry, Sheba had made quite the run for it, right? He said, you know, Israel to your tents, we have no part in David. And he knew, I think he knew that he blew it and he ran. And so they get there and they build up the siege mounds and they begin the work of tearing down the walls. And this older woman, she reminds him of how this city had always been a place where conflict was settled. Now, whether that was because of the wisdom of the people that dwelled there, or whether it was because it was a neutral site where people could meet and and settle their differences, we're not really told. But she tells Joab, you know, this is a place where they would seek guidance, and so they would end disputes. And I'm among the the peaceable and faithful. But you seek to destroy the city and a mother in Israel. And so basically she's telling him, you're going to destroy this city, which has been a good place for people. And you're going to end up killing me, a peaceable and faithful Israelite, a mother in Israel. And Joe goes, I don't want to do that. Right? That's that's not my goal. And she goes, well, what is your goal? Well, there's this guy named Sheba. He's holed up in your city. He's the only one we want. She goes, wait a second, I'll be right back. So she goes and tells all the guys, hey, Joab's going to destroy the whole city just to get to this guy. Wouldn't it be better if we chopped his head off and threw it over the wall? And apparently all the people said, yeah, it's a great idea. Probably, you know, Sheba didn't think so. But they all agreed. They chop his head off and they throw it over the wall, at which point Joab calls off the attack. Interesting scene. Now, at the same time that Joab committed murder, he again is defending the king. Just He's a complicated person, this fellow, Joab. So he gets to verse 23. And Joab was over all the army of Israel. Oh, shocker, right? No, Massa was supposed to be, but not anymore. Uh, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Adoram was in charge of revenue. Jehoshaphat... The son of Ahlud was Recorda. Sheva was scribe. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And Ira, the Jairite, was chief minister under David. So, uh, a couple interesting things. Benaiah was placed over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And if you recall, these were David's mighty men and were likely his bodyguards of some sort. Now, When Solomon becomes king, 
Benaiah becomes the commander of the military under Solomon. So we'll get to that when we get to 1 Kings. But that's after Solomon has Joab killed at the command of his father. David knew Joab needed to die. He knew he was treacherous. He knew he was a liar. He knew he had committed murder. He told his son, don't let that, don't let his head, his gray head go down to the grave in peace. That was that's what he tells Solomon. So, so as soon as David dies, Joab runs into the temple, thinking that Solomon won't execute him in the temple. The executioner comes back, tells Solomon, hey, he's grabbed a hold of the horns of the altar in the temple. Solomon says, okay, kill him there. <laughs> so he goes in and kills him there. So David knew, right? He pronounced judgment on Joab, but he wouldn't do it himself. And we're not told why. So we get to chapter 21. Now, there are some who suggest that chapter 21 is not chronologically in order with the rest of the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, and simply contains varying accounts of things that happened during David's reign. Now, this is possible, especially when we look at the last seven verses. However, I see nothing in the text that indicates that. And because there's nothing in the text that indicates that, I don't think it's wrong to take it as it is and to just accept chapter 21 as being chronologically in order after David returned um, at some point uh, past the stuff with Absalom and whatnot. Remember, we always take and interpret the Bible literally. Unless the Bible itself gives us permission to take it otherwise. When Jesus gave a parable, right? We interpret it as a parable. When Jesus used metaphors, right? He, he, told, the, he told his followers, I am the door, right? Now we know he is the only way to God the Father, but is Jesus literally a door? I'm guessing not, right? So it's, it's okay. There's certain language that usually lets us know that we can interpret something other than literal. Uh, but if we don't have that language given to us in the context of the passage, then we interpret it literally. So chapter 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, the children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore, David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, we will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, whatever you say, I will do for you. And then they answered the king, as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us that we should be destroyed from Israel, or sorry, destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, I skipped a line, let seven men of the descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them. 
between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, a different Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of a, that, that lady, who or guy, whoever, Ahiah, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholathite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days in the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. I jumped ahead to verse 10. We're going to stop for a moment, or I'm going to get ahead of myself. So there's a famine for three years. David realizes something and something's wrong. And he's literally, when it says he inquired of the Lord, that phrase means that he sought the face of God, which is just a beautiful statement. And when he does, right, God tells him what's up. Saul had attacked the Gibeonites, even though Israel was super, supposed to protect them. Now, to remember who the Gibeonites were, you'd have to go all the way back to Joshua chapter 9. When Joshua led the Israelites into the land, God told him very specifically, make no covenant with the people of the land. Right? Don't do that. The Gibeonites, realizing this, well, they took wineskins, old wineskins that were cracked and falling apart. They took old sandals. They took clothes that had holes in them. They took bread that was already stale and molded. They took all that and they go to Joshua. And when they get there, they tell Joshua, we are your servants from afar. When we left, the wineskins were new. The bread was fresh out of the oven. Our clothes were brand new on our bodies. But we've traveled a long distance. Make a covenant with us that you won't kill us. And Joshua made a mistake. He did not inquire of the Lord. And when that happened, he made a covenant and it was only, uh, it didn't take them long. It was really just a few days when they figured out, wait a second, you're in the, you're, you're just right up there. And the Gibeonites were like, ha ah, you made a covenant with us. What are you going to do about it? And uh, Joshua said, well, you'll be our slaves. And they said, fine. But at that point, Joshua had sworn to protect them. And not long after, other kings in the area that Joshua was going to conquer went against the Gibeonites because they had made a deal with Israel and the Gibeonites sent to Joshua and Joshua went up and protected them. Now, we don't know when Saul started killing the Gibeonites, but at some point he had done so. And it clearly happened um, as God brought a famine on the land until this was dealt with. So David makes a deal with the Gibeonites to let them kill seven of Saul's descendants. But he makes sure Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, is protected. So I want to go back to David inquiring of the Lord, which I mentioned means he sought the face of God. Proverbs 8.17 I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. Jeremiah 29.13 And you will seek me and find me when you search for me, with all your heart. Now that's kind of interesting because there's another scripture that says there is no one who there's none who seek after God, no, not one. 
Uh, so which one is it? Well, before we're believers, he seeks us. We're the one lost sheep that he leaves the 99 to find. And he comes usually through the Holy Spirit, sometimes through other people, to bring us to himself. Now, once we're saved and we have that relationship, then we can seek him. We can approach his throne with boldness, according to Hebrews chapter 4. We can come into his courts with thanksgiving and praise. And when we do that, he promises us that we will find him. Isn't that a beautiful promise? You know, throughout my life, I've rejected a lot of phone calls. You know, the advent of caller ID is the greatest thing. And then if caller ID doesn't tell me who it is, it says no caller ID, I usually don't answer it either. Um, They can leave a message and I'll call back. Um, Or if they're trying to sell me something, I'll erase the message and move on with my life and everything's good. But there's several people whose phone call I will never not answer. Three of them are sitting right there. Right? I will never, if I hear the phone ring, I'm going to answer it. Every time. We have that privilege with God. Now, I'm pretty sure God doesn't have an iPhone. If he did have a smartphone, I'm sure it would be an iPhone. But he doesn't have an iPhone. But we can seek him anytime we want. We can pray. We can get in his word and hear his voice. We can worship. It doesn't matter where we're at. doesn't matter what we're doing. And he promises us that when we seek him, we will find him. Now, Armoni. I'm going to get into these names that are listed here of these seven because this is crazy. Right? Uh, I've said a couple times we've come across groups of people that would have made a great reality show. Listen to this, right? So, Armoni and Mephibosheth were sons of Saul by the concubine Rizpah. So, Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, was likely named after the Mephibosheth who was the son of Rizpah because that Mephibosheth would have been his uncle. Right? So, this Mephibosheth was probably not a young man. Now, when David killed Goliath, he was promised Saul's oldest daughter, Merib, as wife. However, Saul became jealous of David and gave Merib to Adriel, and they had five sons. So if you look back at verse 8, Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the five sons of Michael, sorry, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholathite. So David didn't marry Merib. She married Adriel, and they had five sons. Now David did marry Michael, another daughter of Saul, and she became a problem. If you remember, when David was bringing the ark back into Jerusalem, he's dancing around, And he comes into the house. He wants to bless his house. Oh, how the king of Israel portrayed himself today in front of the maidens. And David, well, he had an anger problem. And he goes, the Lord who chose me over your father. 
allowed me to bring the ark back in, and I'll become even more undignified than this. And at that point, even though he was married to her, he cut her off. And she never had natural children. But apparently, somewhere along the way, Mirab had died. And Adriel didn't want to raise these five boys by himself, so he gave them to Michael, Adriel's, or sorry, uh, Mirab's sister, who was then charged with raising these five boys. David took these five and let the Gibeonites kill them. The Bible says David's a man after God's own heart. I, I, don't, I have a hard time with this particular decision that the king made. Now, maybe it was the Lord who led him to make it. Maybe they volunteered. I don't know. I'm kind of thinking the, the first two, Armoni and uh, Mephibosheth, they may have volunteered because at this point in time, they were probably in their 60s, uh, depending at what point in time in David's reign this is. But it was well into David's reign, and he reigned for 40 years. And these guys were born when Saul was still alive. So who knows? They, they could have been in their 60s or 70s at this point. They might have said, all right, David, we'll go. Right? You don't, you, we'll, we'll, we'll take a couple of those spots. But it just seems like David is punishing Michael for her treatment. Now, I, I don't know that for sure. And I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to argue about it. There's nothing in the text that really says that. But why would he choose those five? It's a good question. So we get back to verse 10, which I already read. So Rizpah, the daughter of that guy, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the rains poured on them from heaven. She did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. And David was told that Rizpah, the daughter of that guy, the concubine of Saul, had done. So David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the street of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul at Gilboa. And so he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there. And they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged and they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin in Zela, in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God heeded the prayer of the Lamb. So Rizpah is still around and she goes out to where her two sons are hanging. Right. And if her sons are up in their 60s or 50s, 60s, 70s, who knows? She was not a young woman. Right? Even if she had these kids as teenagers, she would have still been in her 80s. And she goes out, she lays a, a blanket out on a rock, and she stays there. And when the birds come down to try to peck at the bodies, she shoes them away. When the bees show up at night and start sniffing, she gets rid of them. Well, David hears about this, and he goes, yeah, well, we've got to deal with this. So when, J uh, when the Philistines had killed Saul and Jonathan, they had cut off their heads, they had cut off, if I remember, their hands and feet too, and hung them up on the wall in the streets of one of their major cities. When the men of Jabesh-Gilead heard about this, they were like, nope, not going to happen. They snuck into the city and stole the bodies of Jonathan and Saul and buried them in their own town, for which David rewarded them later on. So now David goes, you know what, we're, we're going to take them all together, we're going to bury them all up in Benjamin in the tomb of Kish, who was 
Saul's father. Now, we're not told what happens to Rizpah after this, but we are told that after all this had taken place, God heeded the prayer for the land, which would have clearly been a prayer to end the famine. Now, it's not that God could not hear their prayers. It's that he would not hear their prayers prior to this because of their sin. Isaiah 59.2 reminds us, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Now, while we have been reconciled, those who are believers have been reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ, and I do believe that he always hears our prayers. I mean, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. The Father and Son make their home in us via the Holy Spirit. So um, he listens, he's there, he hears. But there is an indication in a couple of scriptures in the New Testament that when we are in sin, sin that we have not repented of, that this will hinder our prayers. Now, if you're wondering what those scriptures are, 1 Peter 3, 7, that one specifically talks about uh, between husbands and wives, uh, that if there's something wrong there, that it can hinder your prayer life. And then Matthew 5, 23 through 24. However, what we see here is that once the wrong is made right, then God hears their prayers. And the same is true of us. Now, thankfully, if we screw up, In order to make God happy again, we don't have to hand over seven guys to be killed. If that was the case, there'd be a lot of people dying on my behalf. What we do need to do is repent. 1 John 1.9. I come back to that verse so, so often. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now, there are times when we pray that God doesn't answer or doesn't answer the way we want him to because he wants us to wait or because the answer is no. Right? There are those times. So if it seems like it's taking a while for some prayer to be answered, I don't think the first thing you should assume is that you've committed some major sin and God is ignoring you. Right? That's not what, what's happening. But there is the possibility, if you know in your life that you have sin that you have not repented of, and you feel like your prayers are falling flat, I'm thinking you should repent, or I should repent. What we can, but when we, sorry, when we repent, we can trust that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, these, O God, you will not despise. It is with that promise and many others that we come to Jesus initially to be saved by his death and resurrection, and then we come to Jesus repeatedly to repent when we sin, to seek his throne of grace for help in our times of need. We come to him for rest or just simply to be with him and enjoy the relationship we have with God through Jesus Christ. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about the sovereignty of God. And part of his sovereignty is his timing. 
Now, we don't always like that when, if we're honest about it, right? We don't like to wait. Or maybe you do. But you all know me. I hate to wait. In my vocabulary, the word wait is a four-letter word. So why the famine here? Why now? Why didn't God bring famine upon the land for what Saul did to the Gibeonites while Saul was still alive? Why wasn't it maybe earlier in David's reign? Why now? Why is the solution that is offered to let these seven guys die who are descendants of Saul, why is that solution acceptable? I don't know. I don't know. When we don't know, we fall back on what we do know. We do know that God is just, that he is fair, that he is righteous, that he's holy, that his timing is perfect. And so while I can't answer these questions, God knows why he did what he did when he did it. And for us, even though I know how hard it can be, we have to trust. We have to trust him. We have to accept the fact that he is God and we are not. Which means he can do things and he does not have to explain himself to us. Right? Remember when, you, when, when kids, small kids, go to bed. Why? Because I told you to go to bed. Right? Not a good reason. Kids don't usually respond very well, but we've all done it. Right? I've done it. I told you so. And I'm your father, so you have to listen. Now, I don't think God usually does that to us, but he doesn't owe us an explanation. He's God. And when I think about the timing, Isaiah 60:22 says, "At the right time, I the Lord will make it happen." And I love that. Well, I love it and it annoys me a little bit. Right? And I'm, I'm okay with that. God already knows, right? You might, oh, he's saying something that's mean. No, it's not mean against God. I just hate waiting, and he knows it. So he's a good, good father, and he often makes me wait. <laughs> but we do. We need to trust that his timing is perfect. It always will be. Now, verse 15 to 22. These verses are kind of fun. When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants with him went out and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. Then Ishbi Banab, what a name, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out. Or sorry, you shall go out no more with us to battle, yes you quench, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Now, this is one of the reasons I really do believe that chapter 21 isn't chronologically the right place. Because David's old, right? He goes out to battle. Now, I get why David is going out to battle, even though he's old. Remember what happened when he didn't go out to battle? It was the time of the year that the kings went out to battle and David woke up from his nap and walked out under the roof of his house and he looked over at another roof and there was Bathsheba bathing, right? Problems. So David probably thought to himself, I don't want to do that again. So I'm going to war with all my guys. But he's an older man now. And this guy, Ishbi Banab, 
thinks that he can take him out. Thankfully, Abishai comes to his rescue and all the guys say, nope, you are not coming out anymore. At this point, David is probably around six years away from his death, give or take, because of the time frame that follows in the rest of 2 Samuel and then the beginning of 1 Kings, um, which means he was probably in his late 60s, give or take. But we met another giant. The last giant we met, David killed, Goliath. Let's go on, because now we're going to see how the rest of the giants died. Verse 18. Now it happened afterward that there was a bat- again a battle with the Philistines at, at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. Ishbi Banab was one of the sons of the giant. Again, there was war at Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Jare Oregim, the, yeah, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again, there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, in case you can't count. And he also was born to the giant. So when he defiled Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, so David's nephew, killed him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Now, I think this is kind of cool. We see three more sons of the giant killed for a total of four. Right? So these were Goliath's brothers. Now, I don't know if you remember, because this was way back in 1 Samuel 17, and we were there, gosh, probably four, five months ago, earlier this year. But when David went out to face Goliath, he picked up five smooth stones from the river that he could use with his sling. Now, I suggested way back then that it was possible that David did this because David knew that Goliath had three brothers, and they were all the sons of another giant. And maybe he was thinking, I better have enough stones for all of them. I can't prove that. I would never argue about it. But I do not believe in coincidence. There's no coincidence in the Bible. So there just happened to be five Philistine giants, the one giant and his four sons, and David happened to pick up five stones? Eh. It's too convenient. So next time, chapter 22, we'll get into this beautiful song of deliverance from David. And hopefully, we'll get into David's uh, final words in chapter 23. In chapter 24, we see David blow it one more time. Uh, I don't think we're going to take all three chapters at the same time. Uh, but And we're not going to take any of them next week, because next week is movie night. Uh, but... Until then, feel free to read ahead. Um, Next week, movie night's going to be awesome. I think we're doing dinner again. I don't know what we're doing for dinner. I'm open to suggestions. Um, But it'll be a good time. We'll be here at 6. Until then, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the lessons that you can show us. Lord, I've said it so many times as we looked at the life of David. That... He was an imperfect man. 
But you called him a man after your own heart. Not, not because he didn't make mistakes, and some of them were huge. But because he always came back to you. And Father, I just pray for each of us. The fact of the matter is, we've all made mistakes. And if I was a betting man, we're all probably going to make a lot more. But we can still be like David. We can always come back to you. And it's not because of us. It's not because of anything good in us. But because you gave your son for us. And so we come through him and we are so grateful. I pray as we continue throughout our week that you would guide us and lead us and protect us. And I pray that in all we do, you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.